This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder with them to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. Welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes, Series 4, Episode 3. I'm John Richardson, and I guess our future notes would be more pleased to hear from me this week than ever because you're probably tired of each other since you've been in each other's company. It's Ed Gillespie and Mark Stevenson. Hello. 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 <laughs> you, you've been knocking about together, haven't you? You've been d- down London in your Trilby hats, walking around <sighs> Carnaby Street. Well, I did a lot of walking around. So we actually did a we actually did a future notes gig at the place called the Conduit Club, which is really lovely because there were quite a lot of you know fans of the podcast in, which was fantastic to you know sort of uh, meet them face to face as it were. Met both of them. Yeah, <laughs> but it was about so we were due to go on at half about um, about six thirty, and uh, six twenty eight, Ed still hadn't turned up and wasn't answer- <laughs> and, and wasn't answering his phone. Oh, um, classic Gillespie. A, I was worried about Ed, and B, I was about to do the whole gig myself, um, hastily having rewritten a, a chunk of it. And uh, and then you turned up ten minutes late, didn't you? Just uh, just and uh, and why was that, Ed? Do you want to explain why why that was? Well, I think it's worth clarifying that the gig was about our relationship with technology, uh, and and I was <laughs> I was specifically late due to a failure of my own technology. So I went to the old venue, the Conduit Club. The last time I'd been there was pre-pandemic when it used to be based in Mayfair. And uh, yeah, my phone had died. I'd been in a workshop all afternoon. I failed to turn it off to save the battery. So I got to the venue where I thought it was. I was already late getting there and then I couldn't uh, relocate myself. So then I had to have a kind of charge across town. Um, And I, I was actually in a kind of relatively serene state because i thought there's no point in getting stressed about this uh but i did deeply empathize with <laughs> mark standing on stage but i knew that you know he could probably do it better without me yeah so, actually uh... i was a bit disappointed when you turned up <laughs> <laughs> although ed had been hobnobbing it hadn't you with brian eno and chris morris that afternoon and all that kind of stuff so yeah. you'd been hanging out with the celebs you didn't want to hang out with me i'm just Zedless compared to, to the people you were hanging out with. Exactly. I nearly ditched the whole thing. But it was really lovely to be both back on stage again and also talking about something which was not a new topic for us. But, uh, you know, the conduit had said, can you specifically talk about our relationship with technology? So um, it was good because, my God, is that a dysfunctional one? What's it like for you to, from what we gather talking to you on the podcast, most of your work is going into companies where you get to be what shall we say, openly aggressive um, <laughs> to companies who you deem not to be doing enough. What's it like when you talk to an audience who, by definition, I guess, are on-side and proactive? What's your tone there? 
I don't think the tone changes much. I mean, uh, you know, a mate you don't of mine who... call them the C word, surely. Uh, <laughs> well, Mark always forgets, you know, that he's not doing stand-up comedy, um, and so does tend to drift into that sort of territory on occasion. But I think what people relish is like it's it's always good to have that weird, like unusual mixture of education, uh, you know, provocation, stimulation. Um, and, you know, you don't always get those things all at the same time, which is obviously what we try and do. Hmm. No, it was great being here. It's nice. It's nice. You know, I mean, I was so knackered because I'm so busy. And I was like, on the way there, I was just, I remember I had to, I remember I had to say to myself, just keep walking, just keep walking because I was so tired. But you get on stage and a great time. And then we went upstairs and drank a lot of wine, didn't we? So it was all right in the end. I get it. Basically, they're corporate in it, lads. Get on the old free Malbec. Oh, we had to pay for our wine, actually. To be fair. Yeah, <laughs> did you? Yeah, they gave us they gave us a free meal, but um, perhaps they know about us too well, and they said, actually, you're gonna you're gonna have to pay for your wine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. What have you been up to, John? Never been thrown out of a bar at two in the morning because you've had too much couscous. <laughs> um, I have uh, been finishing the tour for the year, so um, it's woking, wasn't in... it? Woke. It was woking the last night, yeah. um, and my voice went, which oddly didn't affect the gig as much as you would hope um, as someone who speaks for a living. But, yeah, broadly, they didn't seem bothered. You just deliver um, it in a breathy whisper then. You know, it's, it'll become a little bit more seductive. when it, it, I would love to say that. It, it was more that I sort of went sort of uh, pre-pubic again. But any time I tried to sort of shout or rant about anything, I went like a teenage boy. <laughs> She's not listening to me. <laughs> Nobody listens to me. Oh, um, but what are you going to do in the interregnum then? Because isn't that a weird sort of reflective period when you've got a tour of two halves? It would be, but luckily I'm filming a new show for Channel 4, uh, which is starting this week. And there's a few uh, charity gigs that Lucy and I are putting on uh, in schools. So, yeah, there's plenty going on, just not not on tour and not Mm. in in the name of my own vanity. Mm. I was a celebrity. Get me back in here. (laughs) Well, (laughs) there there we go. There's a perfect segue into... um, our first listener question, which is to do with whether or not you watch one of the great uh, TV moments of the current time. It's not I'm a celebrity, but the question comes from Oliver Lynch Mather. It says, I was emailing to ask if you guys plan to do an episode on the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. So I don't think we'll do an episode. That's not the vibe of season four, Ollie. I don't know if you've been tuning in, but it's very much a bang, bang, bang. Get the questions in, spit them out get on the old red wine vibe. Um, (laughs) It would be interesting to see the environmentalists take on the event. I have to ask too, I decided to boycott this World Cup by not watching any games and ignoring the whole tournament. It's not a waste of time doing this like my weak-willed friends say it is. Is it? More importantly, if it isn't a waste of time, will the moral, ethical and all-round good comedian John Richardson be boycotting the tournament? So let's talk about the Euros. I'm most interested to hear from you two because you are not football fans. (laughs) <laughs> and whilst that, you know, to, to to some people may seem like it makes it a less interesting chat, I think it's more interesting because the World Cup is the great chance for football fans to have their sport put in front of everyone. And it should be done well, a unifying moment where people who aren't football fans mm. come to games and mm. have a good time and see mm. the positives of football. And that is exactly the side of it that's been eroded. And that's the great shame. It's like a good mm. Olympics. If you have a great Olympics, you have London 2012. It's a culturally significant moment that brings people together around sport. 
and all that has gone. So I imagine for the two of you as not football fans anyway, this is a fairly cut and dry instance. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm a huge fan of the power of sport culturally to change the way people think about stuff. And it can be incredibly powerful. You know, if you look at what you know, certain footballers have done in terms of campaigning or whatever, and even, even in this World Cup when the Iranian team at the, mm. <laughs> before losing horribly to England, uh, decided to, you know, not sing their own national anthem, you know, so that you, you, you do have these incredibly powerful moments. And actually there was a hint that my new carbon removals firm, we, they were sort of like, oh, would you remove the carbon from this World Cup? And we were like, we're not going to touch that with a bloody barge pole mm. because it's just so toxic in that, you know, it's supposed to be the beautiful game, but that you cannot have the beautiful game on an ugly planet or in an ugly place. And I'm afraid, you know, there's human rights stuff and the whole way that football is now packaged and sold and traded um, means that actually it's taken something that should be beautiful and it's made it just, just taste very, very sour and has actually become a, almost a, a model of everything that's wrong with the world. You know, they have done, so for instance, they've done some crappy carbon offsets for this World Cup, so they're already, mm. green, they're already greenwashing it. And they're calling it a carbon neutral World Cup. Yeah, it's absolute mm. bullshit. Take me to court if you think I'm lying because I'll, I'll prove it. <laughs> There's a man who's had a glass of wine with client Earth recently. Yes, I did. I was <laughs> sat out with client Earth. <laughs> yeah, you can tell. You can tell you've been with lawyers. I was sat. I was sat with a lawyer who's currently taking shelter court for um, for not uh, not to, uh, running the company well at the moment. I was, he seemed remarkably calm. He was very very. It's very strange lawyers, isn't it? I said, "How do you feel?" He said, "Oh yeah, it's fine. Just taking the directors of shelter court." You worried? No, nah, not really. We'll win. Bring on the Qatar <laughs> state. Yeah, yeah. Ed, what's your view? I was very conflicted um, right from the word go because, I mean, I did join a sweepstake group um, and then was immediately assigned Saudi Arabia out of the draw. And I was <laughs> like, which, you know, I was very uncomfortable with for obvious humanitarian reasons. Um, but then also, like, it, they were 750 to 1 as the sort of, you know, the lowest ranking team. I imagine they're not that now. No, exactly. And then after the Argentina game, it's like, oh, okay, that was a surprise. Um, oh, he's been I'm... sports washed. Yeah. You sat, sat there in your England top with your Saudi Arabia tattoo on. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I mean, I'm tightly with Mark. I mean, you know, it's supposed to be the beautiful game and there is so much hidden ugliness in there. Um, and I think it's not inappropriating the politics into sport. Everyone says, oh, you've got to separate them out. You've got to separate them out. It's like sport has been used incredibly powerfully, you know, I mean, particularly um, during the apartheid era, you know, with the isolation of South African teams in sport in order to drive political change back home. So, uh, yes, I hear what you're saying, John, in terms of it being a pity, but you can't um, keep these things apart. You know, inevitably um, they have to come together. And I think, you know, that's where the real courage comes in, you know, the, where you can demonstrate the values that you hold through the way that you do sport uh, and the way that you play, um, but also in the way that you convene the whole event. And I think that's the sort of the really dark, horrible underbelly uh, of what's going on in, in the build up in Qatar. And, you know, and what's his face from FIFA, um, who, who's appropriately called Mr. Infantino. Um, yeah, because yeah, he's been a, a bit like a big petulant child, you know. So, so oh, you yeah, you can't well, speak like that about he's a, he's a gay immigrant Qatari migrant worker. Well, you know, I know so he you is. Can't speak like that about him. Well, he and he. What did he say? He said my experience of being red haired 
in Switzerland as an Italian <laughs> immigrant um, like, helps me understand the the prejudice and the you know disenfranchisement that all of these other marginalised groups have faced. It's like, yeah, okay, I get that, but uh, perhaps that's not quite on a par. Um, you know, check your privilege. Yeah. Yes. What do you think? What do you think, John? What do you think about uh, Joe Lysett's little spat with uh, with David Beckham? Well, I wanted to come on to that on a, on a separate issue. Actually, I have okay. a question ready for you on on that. Um, in terms of the World Cup, and I'll answer Ollie's question, I'm not watching it because I think sport only matters when it's for everyone. And, and that power that you talked about of it to unify and unite people only counts if you do make a stand that it is accessible to everyone. And I think in this country, we're having that debate so clearly now about including girls in football. And we've come off the back of the women's team literally winning the European tournament. And we're still having to fight to get the right for girls to play football in schools. So yeah. I said I wasn't going to watch it. And, and in the back of my mind, I think, do you know what? Oh, I don't know. If, if if it gets to the knockout stages, will I be weak-willed and think, oh, I don't know, it's only one game. Does anyone know if I watch it or not? Then I uh, put out a little tweet uh, about the decision not to wear the rainbow armband. And that, I'll be honest, that took off to a point where now I, I literally cannot watch it because I've made a big deal of saying I'm not <laughs> going to watch it. It was in the sun and it was in the mirror. I mean, it was on Steph's Pat lunch, guys. So, wow. um, you know, that, yeah. that is a tweet that caused great ripples. And I, it's lovely when a tweet, uh, it got picked up by Lad Bible and the Sun, which meant I got an influx of messages from people who disagreed with me in very vocal terms. And it's nice to see the arguments against, and I assume you find this sort of environmentally as well, when you are confronted with the people who don't agree with you and their arguments are so basic. You know, my, my view on the One Love Armband is, yes, you take a yellow card. Do you know why? Because yeah. it's only a fucking yellow card. You know, you mentioned the Iranians who could be imprisoned when they get home for not singing mm. the national anthem. It's a fucking yellow card. I had loads of yeah. people saying, yeah, but what if he gets another one and he gets sent off? Yeah, he does. Yeah, that's okay. He gets sent off in a football game. He doesn't get beaten. He doesn't get murdered. He doesn't get imprisoned. His family don't get tortured. So, yeah, you take the yellow card. And, and the other argument I get a lot is, it's only football. You, could, it's, it's, you can't make it a political act. But the political mm. act is in taking it to Qatar. It has become inherently political because what you're saying is, football is not for gay people and we are happy to mm. take the world's tournament to a stage where a number of football fans are not included that is political so going there is political playing there is political so um yeah I, i'm yeah. very clear on how i feel about it and and i'm not watching it but luckily there's loads of other sport going on there's mm, darts yeah. and snooker and as we know all darts players are great guys yeah, <laughs> I've also noticed that it seems that the people that uh, sort of uh, disagree with you on Twitter, they all have the same sort of sort of mock Cockney kind of working <laughs> yeah. class accent. Well, how do you how do you know they speak like that? Well, do you know, I, I was mulling over another tweet that would have really this would have been pulling the pin out of the grenade. <laughs> I wanted to say something like, "Let's see what happens if they ever stage the World Cup in a city where white men with West Ham tattoos aren't allowed to travel there, yeah. and then we'll probably see a lot more action than at the yes. moment." But yeah. Um, I didn't want to uh, annoy the West Ham fans. Not, not with a Hammersmith Apollo gig to sell. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling 
wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So you mentioned Joe Lysett. Now, yes. what I wanted to ask was, and, and it sort of it, it relates to this tweet I did that got me involved in a debate, and it, it relates to what Joe's done, which is definitely a progressive statement and is driving the debate forward. But nevertheless, the great appeal of it is that it promotes debate. Uh, and we're having Just Stop Oil's uh, protests currently suspended, but still going on, which were about provoking debate. And I find I'm getting a little bit tired of the idea of debate as political action or climate action. Mm -hmm. And we are spending a lot of time talking about things and the whole petition movement I know we've spoken about in the past and the idea that I get to feel smug because I've done a tweet that a lot of people agreed with. But I did have a lot of people saying, why don't you fly out to guitar and wear a rainbow armband? Um, it, how do you feel in a world where, because of perhaps social media and because of the way we interact online, we spend a lot of time talking and feeling like we've progressed an action forward when actually... I don't think we've really done anything. I, I I think what Joe's done was fantastic. I would argue that he knew from the beginning that David Beckham wasn't going to engage and, and he, he willfully provoked that debate online and it did happen online. I'm still not sure we're any further along now than we were before that happened. Discuss. Mm. Well, my personal view on this is I hardly use social media at all. I hardly ever tweet because I've realised that it makes absolutely no fucking difference whatsoever to what's mm. actually happening in the world. So, you know, I've just decided to just get on and do what I can with what I've got. And so I just work, work and, and I encourage other people to do the same. And actually, I was thinking the other day, if you, li if you literally removed all social media platforms from the planet, would anything necessarily change for the worse? And actually, if you got rid of all of them, like, the world would be a better place. So I just don't engage them anymore. And I've actually found people that say, oh, you know, you're a public figure, you've got to get out of your... It's like, I've noticed absolutely no difference in the amount of work I get or the amount of work I'm asked to do or how much public-facing stuff I'm asked to do by completely withdrawing from social media. So my advice to everybody is just, just fucking get off it. It's fucking useless. I hate it. It doesn't help us. And it actually distracts us from doing the stuff we should be doing, which is actually, you know, working on the problem. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's that great, great cartoon, isn't there? The guy stepping out of his front door with to be harangued by a whole army of journalists who said, you know that tweet you sent last night um has gone globally viral and has united humanity in in one set of shared values um because yes that's never going to happen is it and I, I, there's a there's a couple of things in there for me as well i the idea of social networking which was where you know all of our social media has like haphazardly evolved from wasn't a bad idea in terms of you know the ability to connect with other people in order to perhaps do things um and I read a really interesting piece in The Atlantic the other week where they were talking about how social networking evolved into social media, where it turned everyone, as Mark was sort of alluding to, into content providers, you know, as if us all sharing our own content or our own perspective on things would lead to greater um, unity. And I, th I think like the antithesis of like the social media so-called debate that you're talking about, John, is the idea of deliberation you know actually not just you know sharing different views but actually working through 
the problems and challenges together to identify the common ground, which is where, you know, the deliberative forum, um, you know, and the citizens assemblies and those type of processes that we've touched on before are absolutely essential right now, because they're the ones that lead us to the actions that will really make a difference, rather than us all screeching at each other from our respective bastions. Yeah, and it's also like KLF, you know, when KLF famously burnt a million quid, didn't they, years mm-hmm. ago, um, which obviously Joe Lysett was partly sort of paying homage to. Um, and, you know, that was a a massive provocation then. But, yeah, I think you speak to, uh, or I've read interviews with the founding members of the KLF in, in like in hindsight, and they were like going, yeah, we're still not quite sure what we achieved by doing that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a very complicated issue. It feels like at the moment it's particularly pointed. We're having a lot of conversations, and not, and not a lot is getting done. And I, you know, I would echo what Mark said. For all the engagement and all the conversations about whether or not you're watching the World Cup or whether you're not watching, I'm a celebrity because of Matt Hancock being in there. The the gigs that uh, Lucy has organised that me and her are doing in in local schools to give those schools a war chest to help families through the winter that's that's the best thing we're doing and that that is the thing that at the moment defines how i feel about myself when i get out of bed and i have this conversation you know with people a lot about reading twitter and listening to the radio and and reading papers and things versus just doing one one local act and it's something we've discussed in in the i think the future of activism and in the future of communities and all those shows we've done that that physical act locally has a ripple effect that you might not be aware of but it is much more important. Then. Well, you know what that is, John, you know, because that is dealing in goods, not truths. You know, what you're dealing, what you and Lucy are doing there is is, is actions as goods, which touch into a sense of value and love and care and consideration and compassion for the difficulties that those schools and, and the kids that attend them and the parents of those children that that's all about dealing in that love it's not about shouting your truth from the sidelines is it it's about getting in there and actually doing something and i think that's the difference now um and i, I saw a, a talk by the, the philosopher carmody gray the other day and, and she was saying that's what religions do is they couch truths within a framework of love which makes them easier to deal with you know or easier to try and reconcile and resolve and and i and i think that's where the real power lies and we we talked about it in terms of the empathy bit uh last week but i i think it's like you're focusing on doing goods um and and couching them in an overarching framework of love and care i'm gonna ask you a question john do you think you would have any less people watching you on TV or coming to those gigs or coming to your tour if you weren't on social media? Uh, No, I don't. I I think about this a lot. I don't think I would, but um, I can understand that fear. It feels like I have nothing to lose by staying on social media and keeping that option available to me. Um, So I, I, um, and, and I think I probably bridge a generational gap comedically where those comedians who started five or 10 years before me see social media as something alien. I mean, I'm typecasting, obviously, there are a great many uh, who are active on social media, but I think their careers came through at a time when it was entirely unnecessary and they've managed to survive without it. And I think those coming through after me have their first gigs put online 
and that that's a world I couldn't bear to live in. And I think they they have only ever known comedy in that interactive world. I used to have a bit about, you know, doing a live gig and then having to come off and check Twitter to see if the gig had gone well, which is an absolute nonsense because you, you couldn't get a more immediately responsive art form than stand-up comedy. You know minute by minute whether it's going well because they're either laughing or they're not. But this idea that your social media presence outweighs your ability in the room, I think is something a lot of comics struggle with because you can go and do well at a gig and nobody knows about it. You know, you can go and smash a tour gig. I'm not saying I have done this before anyone accuses <laughs> me. Don't get me wrong, guys. I know all about traveling up and down the country, roofing arenas. But what I'm saying is you, you can play a room above a pub, you can do a gig and have that euphoric feeling that, that to me is the driving force of being a stand-up, that seeing an audience laughing at things you've written and that, that feeling of being united in that moment, come off stage and it's over. So Twitter and social media are the ways of prolonging that feeling and having people slap you on the back the day after or the few days after. I see a lot of comedians now are on tour retweeting praise, saying it was the funniest gig they've ever been and then saying, oh, there's still tickets left for this one. It's almost giving a narrative to something that by definition is a fleeting moment. So I can understand the addiction, but to answer your question, I... I wait with bated breath for the day when I can leave all social media. But at the moment, there's an expectation that I will be on it because for theatres, for like the school gigs, to be able to tweet and say, I'm going to be in this city doing this gig for this cause and know that that will sell a great many tickets, it, it is a useful mm. tool in that regard. But yeah, for my mental health and, and all, you know, proactivity environmentally, it, it's a nonsense. Got a lot more serious. This, I mean, this, this, <laughs> this time, this time last week, we were talking about uh, butt plugs. I think. Strap in, mate, or should I say, strap on? Um, <laughs> oh, God. Here, here comes a curveball from Dave while we're getting a little bit worthy about mine and Lucy's work. Um, Dave says, as a subject, I'd like to hear you discuss the future of monogamy. Is this something thrust on us by society? Is it something against our nature? Is it an excuse to devote ourselves to a single person? And then he says, don't get me wrong, I'm all for it. He says as his wife watches his every word being typed. <laughs> I can see this being a short conversation if all the hosts don't want to land themselves in deep water with their better halves. Much love, Dave. <laughs> Yeah, I think Dave, Dave's, Dave's got a conversation to have, hasn't he, with his wife there? Yeah, he needs to speak to a therapist, and he not yes. us. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the best way to resolve those sort of questions. Is obviously in a in a publicly broadcast format. Yeah, <laughs> guys, just been thinking about monogamy. What's that all about? <laughs> we didn't ask. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's each to their own, isn't it? Really? I mean, I'm a big fan of monogamy. It's whatever you're comfortable with. The reason that monogamy seems seems to be baked into the human experience is because our children take so long to develop you know we have this huge cost of upbringing a child which you don't have in in many other species and so the idea of having you know two carers that are there for you know for basically 18 or 20 years until the thing matures you know is kind of like an evolutionary mm -hmm. an evolutionary necessity in a, in a certain kind of way so i think we're kind of naturally made for it in, in a way but when the kids grow up and go to uni then you get divorced and get you on do. it right we, well lots of people do don't they that's that's yeah. very common but it also question it also questions the kind of you know it takes a village to raise a child you know which perhaps would have been more of the the situation historically hmm. so it wouldn't necessarily have been so dependent on you know two monogamous parents remaining together because you would have had multiple mothers and fathers within your group um, i mean i don't know for me though i mean you know, just the relationship I have with my partner, just keeping that 
healthy, you know, that takes a lot of work. You know, if you're going to have a, you know, so the idea that you'd have more than one, it's just too tiring. You know, it's really, it's really, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, when you speak to couples that have been together for a long time, they have this thing like, oh, you know, well, it, you have to work at it. And that sounds like it's a bad thing, but mm. it's not a bad thing. It means you yes. have to attend to it and you have to be careful to it. And you have to understand where things mm. are going wrong and, and fix them. So doing that with more than one person. It's totally just, true. Oh my it's God. So I mean, I know some sort of, po I've got some polyamorous friends, you know, and one uh, thing that you everyone... Have. Well, yeah, of course you <laughs> have. You know, you know I was going to almost said at the beginning of this question, well, you know, you should talk to Ed because he's got a lot more experience of <laughs> floating <laughs> yeah. around the, the, the It was you who got us onto the butt plug chat, well, wasn't it? Yeah. No, but it, but it is, I think part of it is, as Mark says, it's like polyamory requires a lot of conversation because there's a lot of understanding and sensitivity Ugh. to navigate all of that complexity. Um, and it can end up being a, a lot like hard work. And also, you know, I've had friends say, you know, it's very weird to be lonely in a relationship, which can also happen, um, you know, when you're not dedicating your time and love and focus to to one specific partner. So, I mean, that's even more tragic to think you're having it all uh, and actually end up having a lot less. But, you know, for some people, it really works. And if it works, yeah. if it works for them, then absolutely fine. But as I say, it takes a lot of conversation. I'm bored enough talking to you two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we're not your lovers, to be fair. Well, you're my, you're my, you're my intellectual gang sex, aren't you? May I, uh, may I ask an impertinent question, possibly, Ed? Because I've made shows about relationships and, and we were very keen to speak to polyamorous couples or throuples or whatever. Um, <laughs> It's very difficult to find any willing to have that conversation and certainly to have it on camera who aren't in their early 20s. When you're sort of polyamorous anyway, aren't you? Most people in their early 20s who aren't tied down have mm. maybe got a few regular partners and, and it's a way of sort of having that seem more official and more of a sort of aspect of your personality than just saying, well, I'm young, I'm going to fuck a few people. I might end up getting married, I might not. These friends of yours who are polyamorous are they are they older and is that a permanent life choice? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and I think you've got people at all stages. You know, as we alluded to, people who have had kids, uh, who have got a kind of a new found burst of freedom in midlife. Um, I mean, you know, I think the cliche is people consider it as like wanting to have your cake and eat it. But no, I think I mean it works at whatever level. Having been party to some of the conversations around this. You know, I, I I do think it is complex, complex, um, and I and I don't know whether it's actually any easier or better. So, um, in, in a way, it's just a live and let live thing, isn't it? It doesn't affect other people, and mm. so I, I don't understand why people find it so destabilizing that other people choose to behave differently. Well, it's exactly that, isn't it? It is that destabilizing. Well, no, you're not allowed to do that because I'm I'm married now, and I'm not allowed to do that. Yeah. So you're not allowed well, to do that. So there's a huge amount of projection um, in these type of things. As you say, people feel like perhaps it's it's a revealing of what people feel like they might be actually missing out on. Mm. So therefore they resent other people's perceived liberation and freedom. And there's the, op there's the opposite side as well, isn't there? There's people who decide to be celibate and, or, or stay celibate until they're married. There's a, there's a well, whole group of, you know, uh, sort of Christian youth that say, you know, I'm not going to have sex until 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 I'm married. Although I remember a great joke from Marcus Brigstock who said, "Oh, don't be ridiculous. If you really, you know, want to not have sex, get married." <laughs> yeah, quite. <laughs> um, final question on this before we play a new game I've invented on this round. Oh, wow. um, you mentioned there um, how it's to do with uh, perhaps our view of relationships viewed by 
raising children and, and having someone there to help you do that. In terms of your own kids, you're both parents. How what what is your projection going forward for them? Um, I think about it a lot in terms of my daughter because the the view you th- the thing you talk about all the time is oh you'll get to lead your daughter down the aisle or you know be at your son's wedding or whatever it is we we sort of project that and and having seen a lot of studies on how we prescribe gender to children and all those things subconsciously without knowing it and we talk about when you get married and all that if your kids were to say to you I don't ever want to be married or be in a relationship or I'm going to be on my own how would you feel about that I'd be I'd be worried for their mental health I have to say you know? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I spent my 20s telling everybody I was happy on my own. And I think now a lot about how my mum felt during that time, because I'm not sure I was a lot of the time. We are social creatures and we are we, mm. we, we thrive in each other's company. And that special relationship you have with a with a lover is but extremely trusting and vulnerable. And it's really essential, I think, for, for human development. And therefore, if my, my children would say that, I'd be thinking there's something else going on here. And actually, that's 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 what we need to talk about so i would i would i would be worried yeah you've managed to give a very compassionate answer there and use the word lover which made me uncomfortable and... <laughs> <laughs> well i mean yeah i mean i kind of agree with mark i think that's where you grow isn't it it's when you have that sort of shared shared vulnerability um uh, and the challenge and to see the world beyond your own sort of solipsistic lens in partnership and i think you know that's that's very profound and it is where uh, a lot of our kind of effective introspection and then, you know, self-awareness comes from, isn't it? It's just, you know, when when someone can be tender and honest with you to to point out uncomfortable truths, um, then, you know, that's where your your potential emerges from. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to leave the truths buried, though, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it is a fun game. You said it takes a village to raise a child. Um, I'm going to give you three villages in England and you have to tell me which one you would want to raise your child. If you were incapacitated, your child is raised by either Robin Hood's Bay in Yorkshire, Bakewell in uh, Derbyshire or Cheddar in Somerset. (laughs) It's a nice geographical mix there. Yeah. Knee jerk answer. Instant response. Your children will be Cheddar. Cheddar. I would have gone for Yorkshire. You'd have gone for Robin Hood's Bay. Yeah, I think yeah. I'd have gone Robin Hood's Bay. Yorkshire's just a very friendly place. You know, I've I've never had a bad time in Yorkshire, and people there are sort of generally very collegiate, and nice, and and chatty, and yeah. So I, I think it was you know, if you want a village to raise a child, you're going to get more villaginess there. Probably. I should point out to to counter that argument, I live in Yorkshire as well. Yeah. Um. So there are the other lot there. Uh, what's <laughs> yeah. made you uh, go for Cheddar, Ed? I don't know. I just, I'm just amusing myself by reflecting on the fact that you could have chosen some much more colourful English village names. Yeah. I mean, like you know, six, I mile, could. six mile bottom um, in Norfolk, <laughs> uh, up a twat in in Orkney, um, or, or in Germany, that lovely place where everyone keeps stealing the road signs, which is called Fuking. Um, I, I don't know. Cheddar was just a visceral reaction. I think it's because it's got Ed in it. Yeah, rich. Oh, I think there's an inherent yeah. vanity to it. Yeah, rich, mature, solid. <laughs> Smells a bit if left out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's gorgeous. There's a joke Way. about Cheddar Gorge. I wonder if they've ever used that for the tourist board. 
You should get you should go into communications, John. I think I should. Yeah. Well, I I was on tour in Eastbourne. Uh, it was one of the first dates on this tour. And I'm always interested by town slogans, mm. and theirs was uh, "Breathe It In," um, which I imagine they deleted during COVID. <laughs> I mean, how many of your audience die during a show in Eastbourne? What's the proportion? <laughs> <laughs> so um, here's here's a personal question from me. I uh, there was a tweet this week and we've discussed social media and all that and it's import that i retwat a quote this week uh from kai heron i don't know if you know kai heron um somebody who seems to work in in the climate sphere um and it was a it was a tweet that was uh, epiphany is maybe too strong a word but Kai's point was, shall I read it to you? Yeah. Um, I've said this before, but ecological politics today isn't about saving the planet or solving the climate crisis, as we used to be told. It isn't even about staying within 1.5 degrees C. That's over. It's gone. Ecological politics is now about limiting how many people die, how many are displaced, how many experience insufferable heat, flood, wildfires and drought, how many species and habitats will be lost forever. The shift in our understanding is important for a couple of reasons. First, it defeats the it's already too late crowd yes it is too late that's why we all need to act secondly it moves beyond narratives about how we have 10 12 or three years to act every decision made that takes us further away from decarbonization like the uk's decision to pursue fracking or the us and europe's subsidization of fossil fuels and refusal to grant reparations to the periphery tips the scales towards greater death and deconstruction it's a sort of gloomy tweet but it to me it was it's something you know when somebody words what you've been feeling for a long time and i especially that point about the defeating that argument that oh well it's too late so we might as well not do anything it that that shift in narrative of more people will still die faster if you behave this way every flight you take every piece of meat you eat that you didn't need is about saying you are tipping the scales towards severe discomfort for these people a lot sooner it was sort of revelatory to me and it, 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 it's, it's been on my mind all week so I, I wanted to hear what you thought about that well I mean I, I completely agree I mean like I, I remember years ago being in a workshop at Cambridge University which I might have mentioned before but with a whole bunch of climate scientists talking about communicating difficult climate messages I mean this is probably a decade ago this workshop um, and we were working through the scenarios of you know what three four six degrees of climate change would look like and it was really really thoroughly depressing um but at the end the climate scientist stood up and he said what we have to remember is that every ton of carbon that doesn't go into the atmosphere now alleviates future human suffering in some way shape or form and at that that line just stuck with me and it stuck with me ever since and i think it does come back to that question isn't it too late for what you know and i think there is a whole bunch of sort of solutionizing um you know save the planet type of thinking you know and i wrote i wrote a piece a few years ago called the end of saving the world because i think it's part of the problem because it puts those of us who acknowledge the the cruel truth not the comfortable delusion um as mark often quotes edward abbey it takes us out of that defeatist and fatalist and that doomist camp i mean we are already at five past midnight you know, it's not five to 12. It's not the doomsday clock where we've always got a bit more time. You know, this is beyond squeaky bum time, uh, which is why you see the, you know, the radicalization as we were talking about last time in, in, in terms of protest movements. But their frame is very different. And it is exactly about 
you know, what damage limitation we are going to be able to do as we get through this incredibly difficult existential pinch point. So, yeah, it's it's never too late, but it's, you know, too late for what? It's probably too late to save a lot of the things that the the mainstream system wants to try and preserve. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't joy and pleasure and and benefit uh, by doing what we can. Mm. I was just, uh, we're just hiring at my carbon removals business and, and it looks like we're going to uh, hire this guy who's uh, from Pakistan. And uh, you know, a third of his country is, has been recently underwater because of climate change. So he's very, you know, he's got a real reason to, 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 to do stuff. It's at, the, it's at the very sharp end. And it's just like, what are you waiting for? You know, there's a third of a country underwater and that's as a direct result of climate change. So um, too late for what? I mean, you know, I was with Client Earth last night and they're, 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 not, they're not going, oh, well, we might as well give up. They're just going, we're going to make the best of it we can. But what I think it is, is, is the, the truth of what's happening to what we've done to the planet and our culpability in doing it makes a lot of us feel both helpless and complicit. And that's a very difficult place to be. So for a lot of people, I understand it. It's easier to deny it or say it's, it's too hopeless to do anything. You know, I sat with a bunch of investors a few years ago and they said to me, well, the thing about this conference we're at is, is it's, uh, well, the planet's on fire, so let's get to the sweet trolley. You know, that's, that was a view of, of some of them. And of course, that's changed now. But, you know, it's kind of annoying. Uh, and, but everybody's now coming around to the fact that actually we've got to do something because it's finally starting mm. to impact them. And it's like, you fuckers, we've been banging on about this for 20 years. So I think we're going to see a lot. I think that attitude is going to die quite quickly. Um, and we're going to be a lot of scrabbling around. And there'll be a lot of people going, well, why didn't you tell us? It's like, well, we did. And what can I do? Well, do more. And it's still going to be bad. But make the best of it you can. That's, that's the truth of it. So the question on everybody's lips, we've dealt with some of the smaller issues. Qatar climate. How are things going with Quantum Pig and the imminent tour? Um, well, uh, this afternoon I'm in a penultimate rehearsal, and then uh, I'm flying off to give a couple of talks. Fly back on Saturday morning to go into a sort of a six-hour final rehearsal, and then on the tour bus Sunday morning. Um, and we got uh, a tour bus. I say tour bus. It's, it's a meta. <laughs> it's a metaphorical bus. The, the, it's a it's a Toyota Rav Four. I know he wouldn't even give me a git list ticket. Can you believe that? I like I said, can I come along to your gig? And he went, no guest list. No, well, you can yeah, you can come you can come, you can you can you can come along, but there is no guest list because it's because touring now at that level is is almost impossible to make money because you've got to take a whole bunch of stuff on. It might break even the tour. You'll probably lose money. So that's why. Um, but if you're not doing anything on Wednesday, we're at the Comedia in Bath. And if you're not doing anything on Thursday, December 1st, we're at the Islington Assembly Hall in London. Um, if you want to see old men that don't want to dance playing the needlessly complex music about death and climate change, this is your gig. <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> I tell you what, as a strapline for a band, that has got me going more than anything I've heard in a long time. If you want to see old men, but you don't want to dance, <laughs> fuck yeah. yeah. That is exactly what I want. <laughs> see you at Islington Town Hall then, John. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, or Leeds. some cracking venues there. Yeah. The Broodnell is a lovely venue. Yeah. Comedia, Brighton has been some of the happiest gigs of my life. Equally, it has to be said, some of the heaviest deaths. Mm. Well, actually, it's uh, Bath Comedia we're playing. So, you know, Oh, is it Bath Comedia. Yeah. Oh well, even worse. I've really tanked there. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's a that is a high ceilinged room for mm. a small squeaky man. 
Mm. Does that does that what does that feel like when you go back to a venue where you've previously had a nightmare gig? Is it does it feel like a sort of performance exorcism? Is it a bit like when you go to your bedroom, Ned? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you never recover. Yeah. You you could go back and encore fifty times, and yet every time you walk through the door, you will remember the death. Death oh. leaves a stain like no other. So, there are venues that just I will never want to play because I might have died at them once, and I might have gone back there to have a good time three or four times. It's, mm. it's an odd alchemy. Um, what's coming up for you, Ed, this week? Oh God, what am I doing this week? Uh, I'm going to speak to the. Uh... Employee Reward and Benefit Association in London <laughs> tomorrow. Um, as I say, I get all the glamour gigs out of our portfolio of performance options. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go and talk to them about how you change, as as Mark always says, you know, how you change employee bribery, which is essentially what the rewards and benefits system is uh, for people doing meaningless, purposeless jobs they don't like very much, um, and how you change that like reward, benefit, and incentivization system to actually point towards planetary and social transformation. So maybe, uh, maybe you could do a, a carbon removal for every employee so that their their carbon uh, uh, emissions are are removed. We did that. We did that at my old agency. Do you remember? We gifted that when we did a Future Noughts gig for the Christmas party. We uh, yeah. we made every, every every employee carbon neutral for the year. That's a great gift. Isn't it? Isn't it a lovely gift? We often find there's some of these things, you know, one of the other things I was going to talk about is, like, you know, after I came from my trip around the world uh, without flying, I introduced a slow travel policy at work, you know, which was if anyone took a train instead of a plane for a European holiday, we gave them an extra day of annual leave. Yeah, so they could never say, "Oh, well, it, you know, I lost a day of my holiday because I was on the train," um, uh, to compensate for the supposedly longer journey, you know, by going by rail rather than flying. And, you know, and, th- and that's quite an established benefit now. You know, the the charity possible um, p- promotes it through their climate perks program, and I think it's that kind of thing. If we were being actively incentivized and rewarded and encouraged to do, you know, globally transformative behaviours, wouldn't that be a beautiful world? Mm. It's a Beautiful endpoint. It really shows, you know, where this podcast can go. Last last week we ended with a joke about butt plugs, and this this week it's a progressive conversation about uh, how we better enable our workers to do what they want to do environmentally. Um, now, this podcast is nothing without your questions. That's how we come to be discussing the World Cup and monogamy and villages. So keep those questions coming in, as well as the heavy and the serious. It's nice to get the uh, the silly ones in. So if you've got any more um, silly questions that you want to pry into the private lives of Mark and Ed about, then do send them in and here's how you do that. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at john, J-O-N, and the future noughts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letter swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucool, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L. And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour. Thank you, gentlemen. It seems like busy weeks coming up. I always appreciate your time and it always makes me feel better. And I think I speak on behalf of our listeners when I say that. So uh, have a wonderful week, Mark and Ed. Good luck with the start of the tour and uh, we'll catch up with you soon.